I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6. We've been working our way through this book. We took a break last week to uh, uh, celebrate Easter, and uh, we are now coming back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 6. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. When the Lord said, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the, uh, on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And the Lord saw, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to beast to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this precious word. The Lord, this is a passage that is is really beyond us. There's so much that can be said. There's so much that needs to be said. I pray that we would handle this word correctly, carefully. May we glean from this passage what you would have us do today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many characteristics of God that we find throughout Scripture. Many attributes that describe Him. Some of the attributes that uh, that describe God are are beyond us. We can't really relate to them. Those are non-communicable or uncommunicable attributes. And that would be like His omniscience, His omnipotence. We We can't really relate to that. Our knowledge is limited. He has all knowledge. Omniscience. He has all power. Our power is limited. He has, he is immutable. We, we change on a daily basis. So that there's some characteristics of God that, that do not change, that, uh, are, uh, are related, relatable to us, but some are not. Those are not relatable to us. But there's some that are. God is a, 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 he is characterized by love. He's characterized by patience and humility and, and goodness. And we can relate to that because we can share in some of those characteristics. One of the things that we forget, I think, about God is God, an attribute that we forget about God is that He is a God of wrath. He is a God of, of anger. And that is one of those communicative uh, communal, uh, communable uh, attributes of God that we can share in that attribute. 
And that's the theological term. And we, we know what it is to, to fly off the handle. We know what it is to, to be angry. But our anger, and we, we know this, and I'm not telling you that something you don't know. In your heart, you know that your anger is not like God's anger. Okay? We fly off the handle for any number of, of reasons, and we justify it. We can point to God and say, well, see, God is God of anger, and we can justify that. We point to Christ and say, He got angry. We kind of justify our anger. But we know in our heart of hearts that our anger doesn't really match the anger of God or Christ. In fact, Christ's anger, he would get angry, but he did it without sin. Without sin. Um, in fact, Christ warned us about our anger. <clears throat> if we uh, are angry and we say things to our, our brother it's the equivalent of, of murder in our own heart. And we, again, we know these things. God's wrath, though, is not like man's. His wrath is not like that. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, he tells us to leave the wrath of God, leave the, the wrath and, and the anger, leave it to him. That, that's his business. He, he will take care of those things. God's anger is not... Uh, affected by sin. Our anger is affected by sin. In fact, 99% of our anger is probably sinful anger. My anger is sinful anger. Uh, James said the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. God's wrath, God's anger is governed by his sense of righteousness. It's governed by his holiness. His sense of right and wrong. And he can restrain that. He knows exactly how far. And God's anger is 100% perfect. We can't do that. At least I can't do that. Maybe you have reached that in your life, but I'm not there yet. Now, we can, we can tell when, I can tell when my wife is getting angry. Men, can you tell when your wife is, is getting angry? Not, not, not when she's already full-blown anger. When that anger is building up, I'm not going to use my wife as an example, but I do remember when I was playing basketball in high school and we would play all the time and you could tell when these guys are getting frustrated, their, their anger, their level was increasing, they, they, they'd play a little rougher, uh, it, it would escalate a little bit more, start puffing out their chest, getting each other's face and, and you could tell, okay, this is, this is escalating quickly, that kind of thing. Have you ever thought, have you ever asked the question, what is it like when God's getting angry? When he is, uh, uh, he's starting to get, his wrath is being kindled. Let's say it like that. How can we tell that? What are some indications? Does he just uh, randomly get just ticked off? Does he fly off the handle for any reason? Is living with God like living, uh, walking on eggshells? You have to be so careful not to not to offend Him. You gotta, he'll, he'll go off and just fly off the handle. Or does he have a short fuse, a long fuse? You never know what side of the bed he's going to wake up on. Or he may be like the the contentious woman in the Old Testament, the, in the Book of Proverbs, just a constant dripping. Or the the woman who is so contentious that you can't live with her, so it's better to live on the top of the roof. What kind of anger? Is, how do we see God's anger, anger being kindled? In this passage, 
We don't see quite yet the full unleashing of God's wrath, do we? The flood isn't here yet. But what we do see is the building up of God's wrath. We see the, the, the increasing of God getting angry. He is, he is informing us. And we see some indications. In fact, He has to tell us. He has to tell us when His anger is increasing. And uh, I, I think... I think believers have a sense about God's anger. I, I do. I, I think true believers can kind of sense. We can look at our day. We can look at America today. And we can kind of get that sense. You know what? God is not very pleased at certain things. And so we, we have a growing sense that, that God's anger is being kindled when He looks at America today. And his, his righteousness is being violated. We sense that same kind of anger. And again, God says, leave that to the Lord. Now, I think then we can learn some things from this passage about the attributes of God. Not, not only that, but, but how we can implement these things into our own life. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we, we left off at the birth of Noah. There was ten generations between Adam and and Noah, we were looking at the genealogies. We looked at genealogies in chapter 4. looked at genealogies in chapter 5. We saw the ungodly line. We saw the godly line of Noah's seed. It came to Noah. And again, that was a, a godly seed of discipleship. It wasn't just born into a certain family or anything like that. But when it came to Noah, the, the genealogy stopped because... They, uh, they acknowledge that there's something within Noah. I'm not sure how they would know this kind of thing, but they acknowledge that there was a hope there. A hope of, for humanity. That there was a relief from the, uh, the, the sin and the toil and the spiritual decline of that, uh, world and that time. Now again, this is Noah's birth. The flood hasn't happened yet. We know God's wrath is going to be kindled during this time. So that's exactly what we see in this passage. And so here's a, here's a principle. Here's a principle. That God's wrath is to be avoided, right? I mean, that's not a surprise. God's wrath is to be avoided at all costs. But man must be made aware of this dreadful wrath to come. That's important. Man must be made aware of God's dreadful wrath. And it is, it is coming. Now, let's, we'll look at this passage, but there's a few things that I want you to notice in this passage. And I want to make some disclaimers here, because this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to interpret. It's just hard. We, there's, there's probably more that we don't know than that we do know. We, there's, uh, a lot that we just don't know. A lot that we don't understand. Uh, now, we do understand, I, I think we can grasp the general principle, the general point of the passage. Some of the details we, we are a little fuzzy on, but I think the, the thrust of the passage is pretty clear of what Moses is communicating here. Some of the details, like the sons of men, or I'm sorry, the sons of God, the daughters of, of men, these mighty men, the Nephilim, You've heard of these guys, these men of renown. Now, I'd love to be able to stand up and just give a dissertation on these Nephilim. Okay? But we don't know. There's a lot that we don't know. 
There's a lot that the Bible doesn't say here. But it's really not the point. Now, there is a point, but it's not to satisfy our curiosity about these big, giant kind of people. I'd love to, to know it all, but I don't know it all. I can't answer all of your questions. I can't even answer all of my questions. All we can do is look at the text. Look at the text. Now, there's three areas that I want to I want you to note here when we look at begin to look at this passage. There's three three areas. Now, the first one is is the time frame, because this can be a little bit a little bit confusing because Moses is writing these things and he's writing these things and he's writing to the children of Israel on the plains of um, uh, plains of Moab. He's communicating these things to them, but he's pointing back to Noah's day. And even further back, sometimes to even creation. And so it's hard for us to, to kind of get perspective there. But there's a, there's a reason that Moses is communicating these things. And, and so just if you look at the time frame of this, there's a lot of time-sensitive words here. And it came about. That's a, a time-sensitive word. That, that man began to multiply on the face of the earth. You get the, the idea. You can go through all six or eight verses here and you, you see time sensitive information here and, and we need to keep that in perspective because I, I think in some senses Moses is satisfying the curiosity of the Israelites because they know in the back of their mind they know that there are these giants in the land that they're going to be facing. And there were. They were. So there's a, a little sense of that that Moses is, is kind of communicating. And it's time sensitive. Number two, I think the next thing we need to, to notice here is there's a focus on demography. That's just the, the population growth. And you, you saw it in the text when I was, I was reading, just almost like a, an explosion, population explosion. The lifespan, remember, the, the lifespan was 800 to 900 years, and it says, uh, uh, they begin to multiply. Babies were born to them. They were uh, bearing children. And, and those words like that. And so there's indications there. There's a, a pattern that you, you see that there's a focus on, on a population growth. Um, by this time, I think, in human history, they begin to see this, this pattern of genetics. Right? This incredible world of biology, of, of genetics. They're beginning to see some of these things. That the right combination of, of man and woman here can produce certain results. Now we see the same thing today, right? Um, we, they, uh, it doesn't, it's not rocket science. You can see family resemblances here and they begin to, to put two and two together here and put uh, married these, this couple and, and it produces this result. And we breed animals today. Dogs or, or horses. And I think that the focus here is on that kind of reproduction. Uh, of genetic engineering, we, we might call it. They, they begin to see the genetic traits. And so, therefore, the, the second point, or the third point, is their daughters. Their daughters are, are uh, mentioned here. And, and I want to read that now in verse, in verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, the population explosion, and daughters were born to them. Now, look, this is not just the typical daughters were born to them thing. 
Because if daughters weren't born to them, they wouldn't have been any kind of explosion of population, right? It doesn't even make sense. Now, I think there's a, a focus on these daughters. A, a biological, I think, a genetical, genetic focus on these daughters. Daughters were born to them. And they begin to, to see the incredible element, incredible element that these, that women can reproduce or, or bear life. That's an incredible thing. And they begin to, I think, pull these things together, these genetic traits, this DNA uh, transformation from one generation to the next generation. I think they begin to analyze these things. That's pretty interesting. Again, it's not rocket science. I believe that they were very smart. These were not just cavemen. Uh, they may not have known the term DNA, but I think it was the idea was there. So that I think there's three things that we need to keep in mind. Now, Let's go back to our question. What does it look like when God's wrath is kindled? And again, I think, you know, I think we can learn some things. Because we all struggle with anger. We're all self-centered enough to get angry at those drivers in front of us, or angry at our wives, angry at our children. In fact, there's enough stuff throughout our day to get angry. And I think there's some things that we can learn here. And there's three observations I want us to make about God's anger. Now think about this. Three observations about God's anger. Number one is that God's wrath has a tipping point. God's wrath has a tipping point. My children know that my that their mom has a tipping point, right? It's just the last straw. The straw that broke the camel's back. It's like a a scale. You have patience on one side. And you have the tipping point on the other side. The wrath. When it goes down, patience goes up. It's it's just Katie bar the door. So you have... God has a tipping point. Now, historically, there's three interpretations of this passage. Three interpretations. And I want to try to be fair with all three of these interpretations of this passage. Number one, I want you to, I want you to notice, take, again, take note of these three things. Number one, the identity of the people. Because that's an interpretive challenge. People don't quite know. Number two, the sin that these people commit. And then number three, the offspring. What is the result of this sin? What was, what's going on here? The first one you see on the, the screen here is, I, I call it Lamech's um, harem. Now, remember Lamech, uh, he was Cain's descendant, and he was the, the most noted one, and he took for himself, what, two wives. And, and the idea, they would say, is uh, Lamech uh, produced a, a harem there, and, and kind of because of his meanness, because of his forcefulness and his godlike character, so these sons of of Elimic or, or God, sons of God, they would just interpret it that way. These sons of, of Limic were the sons of God. And they were kind of God-like. And um, uh, they, they became the judges. They became the tyrannical kings, uh, the, the line of succession from, from Elimic on. And this, this uh, theory came about as a result of, uh, in the second century, some rabbis kind of uh, came up with this idea in the second century. And these, these men were the judges of their day, and they were harsh. 
And they were the, the Nephilim. And the Nephilim means, that term means, uh, fallen ones. Now, the, the idea is someone falling on you, okay? You're going down the road, minding your own business, and someone just kind of overtakes you with force. And so these are these are kind of robbers or bandits, and and they 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 take and they rule by force. And uh, so what they were doing is is uh, Lemek and his descendants. They this character trait uh, was uh, was passed on, and and they were ruling everybody else, and uh, and that was the sin. But the problem is, is this really wasn't a worldwide kind of problem. Why destroy the whole world? And I I don't see that as the as the real issue here. And it doesn't really explain the, the giants in the land kind of uh, idea. Number two is a, is a corrupting the godly line or the godly seed model. And, and this is the idea. It takes the, the sons of God. I'll, I'll read that again. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men that were beautiful. Or the word actually is good. In fact, it's not beautiful in the sense of just facial beautiful, but it means good in the in the sense of function. They're useful, kind of like a, a tool. Hey, that's a good one. Let's pair those two up. It's functional kind of good. And they took wives and to, for themselves, whomever they chose. And so the idea here is that um, these these uh, and if you remember back, we studied two. In chapter 4 of Genesis, we studied the ungodly line. In chapter 5, we studied the godly line. And what they said was these two lines crossed. They were uh, intermarrying with the the wicked. The righteous and the wicked were intermarrying, and and that was not to be done. And uh, this this, uh, theory came about, I believe it was Calvin, at least the Reformers, they held to this position. And they would point to uh, the... Uh, Israel was called the children of God from time to time, and they would point to the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament forbid uh, interracial, or, I'm sorry, inner uh, marriage of the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay, and the sin they said they would say that uh, they were not trusting God. The idea is that these godly men felt like uh, the survival of the fittest almost, that they were going to be wiped out if they didn't marry these, these ungodly women because they were stronger and mightier. And, they, and so they, they kind of caved. They just were not trusting God. And so they would say that's the sin that was involved here. And again, I, I, again, I don't see that because that wouldn't necessarily produce this super natural offspring, these giant kind of, of people. Let me give you a third view here. And that is demonic possession view. And this is, I think, has the most biblical support. It is the oldest view. This is the view that the Jews took for many, many years, way before, um, even before Christ. Um, and, and this points to the way the word sons of God is used here. And I want you to turn over to Job chapter 1. We'll see how this term is used here. And it's important for us to lay these things out for us. Job chapter 1 and verse 6 says this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came uh, with them. The sons of God in this refers to the angels. And it would be common in that day 
for uh, the court of the king to be called the sons of the king. Or the sons of God. That whole court would be the sons of God. It's again used in chapter 2 of Job. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. And the idea is they come before the Lord and uh, and give an account for their actions. And we know that that's exactly what Satan had to do. And then we see again over in Job chapter 38 and verse 7. We see when the morning star, that would be uh, Satan interpretation. This would be Satan, the morning star, sang together. All the sons of God shouted with, for joy. The sons of God here, clearly, was the angels. And so we would say that, uh, and my, uh, I think the best interpretation would be interpret this as the sons of God were these angels. Okay? Now, something happened with these angels. These were the fallen angels. These are the ones that were in rebellion against uh, God. They had followed Satan. These were essentially, we would call them demons today, fallen angels. And again, they were in rebellion against God. Something happened in Noah's day that would cause them to, to be banned. In fact, that's what we see. We see the time frame in 1 Peter. God revealed this a little bit more to us in First Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. We see some incident here that I think is being referred to. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pit or to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So at some point... These demons did something. God was displeased and he banned them. Now, in the book of Revelation, we can look at the the other verses. And at some point, they're in this pit. At some point, they're going to be released. Okay? Keep that in mind. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter uh, chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And look at verse 19. Well, let's start with verse 18. For Christ also died for sin once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So he's dead in the flesh, but he's alive in the spirit. What did he do in the spirit in those three days? Well, Peter tells us, in which also he went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison. So so you have these... These spirits, these demons that for some reason they have been put into prison in this pit. And Christ goes and, and it's a, a victory, victory all. Seems like he's proclaiming victory over what they were attempting to do. Verse 20, who once were disobedient. So these, these angels, these demons were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the Construction of the ark. Now we've got a time frame. We, we have an event. We have something going on. It has to do with the angels and, and God didn't, being displeased with them and throwing them into a pit until at least the book of Revelation. And, and we have a time frame and that time frame puts us in the book of Genesis at the time of Noah. And I think this is the event that is being talked about in First Peter. It says, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight people, were saved. Let me give you one more passage here. You'll see why I'm belaboring this point. Jude chapter 
1, verse 6. I'll read uh, a couple of verses here. Jude chapter 1, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he was, he has kept in eternal bonds until darkness for the judgment of the great day. That's the book of Revelation. So you have these demons. This pleased the Lord. And he's thrown them in this pit. What did they do? What did they do? They did not keep their natural boundaries. Their natural abode. Their natural domain. But just like in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Uh, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality. Same way. They crossed the boundaries. What is Sodom and Gomorrah known for? Homosexuality. Lesbianism. Crossing the natural boundaries. Men with men. Women with women. Crossing those natural boundaries. Strange, he goes on to say, and went after strange flesh. And, and that seems to tie... Genesis and the New Testament together, there's some event there that these angels seem to try to get into the flesh of mankind, maybe possession, to try to produce maybe some of this supernatural offspring. Now that's, again, it's conjecture, but there's some proof from Scripture. We look at this and and say, man, pretty good evidence here. So let's go back to our passage and let's see. So the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, daughters of men, were beautiful. They were beautiful. They were good, useful. They chose their wives whomever they wished. And here's the key. And I believe this is the point. We can we cannot necessarily have all the details, but here's the point. My spirit, God said, God, the Lord God said, verse 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. There is a tipping point. My, God says, I will, not, I will not put up with this forever. At some point, the scales are going to be down. And I, I, I will react. In fact, it's just now. Because they are flesh. They are also in flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. Now, why does he say that? Is he capping the, okay, you're not going to live past 120 years? No, it's not what he's saying. He says there's going to be judgment in 120 years. And what do we see? Mo, uh, Moses. Noah preached 120 years before that ark. He gave these people, he was gracious enough to give these people a warning 120 years. And he says, that's going to be it. My spirit will not strive with man. I'm not going to be patient. My patience is wearing out. And that's when you have then the Nephilim. These these mighty men. I think genetic engineering. Trying to pull together. Unnatural uh, coming together. And and maybe some demon possession coming in there. These demons trying to produce. And so you have verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards when the... Sons of God, that would have been the, these angels came into the daughters of man. So that added to it, this experiment of these supernatural uh, beings maybe, perverting the human race. These demons crossed the line. God put them in prison. Those were the mighty men who were of old. Men of renown. And I believe that genetic 
genetic mutation came, it was still with them. And that's what produces the, the Goliath in, in their day. And that's why the children of Israel could look and say, hey, there's giants in this land. There probably was. This genetic engineer probably crossed some of the lines. And maybe they were even trying the same, some of the same stuff in. Now, you say, well, what's the point? What's the point? I've given you, I've given you the, the, the different views here. The, the identification, the sin, and the, and the, the reproduction of the offspring here. And maybe it was a genetic engineering that, that went wrong. We, we don't know exactly. But God says, look, you've got 120 years. 120 years. My patience is wearing out. The bottom line here is, is just that. God will not tolerate sin. Will not tolerate sin any longer. The question really is, why is he taking this long to, to, to react anyway? Why is he being patient? Why is he slow to anger? Now, we have to look. We have to look at a couple of verses here. In Psalm chapter 103, we see this. And this just brings out a characteristic of God that we need to note. Psalm 103 verse 8 says this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. Folks, if we can learn anything about the patience of God or the anger of God, it's slow and He's compassionate. He doesn't want to do this to men, but men's bringing it on themselves. He is a compassionate God. That's the thing that is to be emphasized. But He's slow to anger, but His anger has a tipping point at some point. Now, and it seems to be that tipping point seems to be when, when flesh is crossed or when, when there's some crossing of the domain, the divide, men with men, women with women. I don't know, but Sodom and Gomorrah was noted for something. And I'm telling you, when God looks at America and He sees the sinfulness that we have today, and I just wonder if that tipping point is real close. Is real close. We, I'm, familiar, I'm uh, just reminded of, of God's passive judgment. Well, by, by the way, let me, let me just go back and read you this one verse. Uh, there's other verses. God was angry with, with Israel. Uh, but I have to read this, this one passage that, that uh, Clifton read for us earlier. And it is in Jonah chapter, Jonah chapter 4. And verse um, verse two, and of course my Bible can't turn to it right now for some reason. Jonah chapter one, I'm Jonah chapter four. Can somebody tell me where Jonah is? What we see, and they just let me just quote it. Let me just uh, state it. Jonah chapter four, verse two. What did he say? He says, God. So this is exactly why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. This is exactly why I drugged my feet, why I went the other way. Because I knew, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. I knew that you would, you would turn your, uh, you would change your mind about Nineveh. I wanted Nineveh wiped out. So I didn't want to proclaim the gospel to them. He says, this is why, exactly why, exactly why. Because I knew that you were a gracious God. Folks, we need to keep that in mind. We need to keep that in mind. You have to have God is gracious. He is slow to anger. 
And when we look at America, we've got to keep that in mind. But we also have to keep in mind that there's a tipping point. There's a tipping point to God's anger. And at some point, God will not, God's wrath will be unleashed. Now, is that tipping point? Homosexuality, lesbianism, the crossing over, the fleshly crossing over today. Is that the tipping point? I don't know. I don't know completely the mind of God, but we do see that's a significant sin. So often we say, oh, sin is sin in God's eyes. There's some sins, folks, that seems to get God's attention. Anyway, just keep that in mind. God and God's wrath, God's anger has a tipping point. Number two, we'll move quickly. God's wrath is always justified. Look at verse 5 and 6. Go back to our Genesis passage. Verse 5 and 6. <clears throat> then the Lord saw. Now that's a key point. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continuously. Wow, what a verse. Then the Lord was sorry that he had made man it's not that he had changed his mind and knew what was going to happen, but he's communicating these things to us. He uses terminology that we could relate to on the earth, and he was grieved, his holiness. He looked down on earth, he saw what was happening, and he made an evaluation. He made a, it would be like a doctor, a doctor diagnosing the disease, and he lays it out here that the every intent of the thought of not just the thought, but but the intent of the, the motive behind the thought was evil continuously. There was no good within man. Man was rotten to the core, we would say. The prognosis is terminal. The doctor has spoken. Here's the disease. Here's what's happened. This is the most uh, the, the the deepest, the most comprehensive um, statement on the depravity of man. Here is very thoughts. Sinful. Every part of man. His very core is sinful. Nothing to be done except just wipe them out. Wipe them out. And his heart was grieved. It was continuous action. Pigs are going to be like pigs, right? I mean, they, they look like pigs. They're going to snort like pigs. They're going to eat like pigs. They're going to wallow in the mud like pigs. Dogs. How do we know a dog? He's going to act like a dog. He's going to have dog nature. We could try to train my dog to be like a a cat. But it's just not going to happen. The very nature has to be changed. That's what has to happen. No no one would blame a judge today if he uh, sentences a serial killer to death. He kills multiple times, just over and over. And, and anybody would send them to the death chamber. And God's evaluation is correct here. Man is guilty. God is justified. He is morally justified to wipe out the whole of the earth. Because the whole of the earth is sinful. The whole of it is sinful. And His righteousness is offended. And the diagnosis is death. It, it will kill Him. The diagnosis is sin. And it leads to death. God's evaluation is right. God's evaluation is right. Now, here's, here's the application. Here's an application for us today, I think. We have sinful hearts. In fact, Jeremiah says that our hearts are deceitful. We have to be very, very careful about 
even even evaluating our own heart. We need to trust God's evaluation. These people, they can look at themselves and say, we're not that bad. But they needed to trust God's evaluation. God looks down and says, yes, you are bad. You deserve death. You deserve death. We have a day that evil is being called good and good is being called evil. And folks, there is a a danger. We have to accept God's evaluation upon man. We have to look things from God's perspective. And, And there's a danger. If we don't do that, God's wrath could be kindled and we would we would just not not know it. Number three, number three, God's wrath is not to be questioned. This is one last passage here. God's wrath is not to be questioned. Look at back at Genesis chapter six, verse seven and eight. And the Lord said, I will blot him out. I will blot men whomever I have created from the face of the land, from men to animals to creeping things, to the birds of the sky. For I am sorry I have made man, made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Wiped them all out. And he was justified in doing so. Is total annihilation, total destruction. Don't save any of them, not even the birds. Just throw them all out. Get rid of them all. But Noah found grace in the eyes. Was Noah perfect? No. No, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah wasn't a righteous, he was a righteous man from our standard, but he, he probably had some of the same symptoms of sin in his own life. That's why it's called grace. He, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace in the eyes of the Lord. We have to ask the question, why did God even spare Noah? Why did He spare Noah? Let me remind us this one last passage in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 verse 18. A passage you're familiar with. Romans chapter 9. It's on the screen. Verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires. And he hardens whom he desires. That's a passive hardening. He just lets them go their own way. And their own hearts hardened themselves. He just pulls back his grace. You will say to me then, why does he stand still? Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, oh man? There's no one higher than God. No one can evaluate God. No one can pronounce his evaluation on God. This America needs to know this now, today, because we have a lot of people standing in judgment over God. Who are you, oh man? To stand in judgment over God. Oh man, who, who answers, who can, who answers back to God? The thing molded does not say to the molder, why have you made me this way? Or does he not, or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump, one lump, a vessel of honor and another vessel of common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and the making and to make his power known. Now, what's going on here? He's going to demonstrate his wrath. He allows them. Okay, you, you want to go down that road? Go down that road. I'll allow you that. There's a tipping point. 
I'll allow you because I want to show, I want to demonstrate my wrath and power. Known, he wants to make it known. Endured with much patience, much patience. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, here's the key for us. And he did not, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. He should have wiped Noah out as well, but he was merciful. And he waited 120 years before he did this. He is a merciful God, slow to anger. When his anger is filled, it's filled But he is slow to anger. And there's a purpose to it. But he's slow to anger. But he wants to also demonstrate vessels of wrath. uh, Vessels of mercy, folks. And that's where you and I come in. We're vessels of mercy. I look at the world and say, God, I I would be just like the world. If you hadn't worked in my heart. If you hadn't uh, uh, presented your grace. Or presented your grace in my life. I would be just like them. But... He, he just chooses. How do we know? Was Carl Dingus good enough? Certainly not. He's certainly not. All we can do, folks. He, he gave them a warning. 120 years. He, he, he made Noah to be the preacher. Preach for 120 years. When we lived in Indiana, there were these small little towns uh, that uh, you had to be aware of these uh, uh in the, especially in the mid, throughout the Midwest, these uh, tornado warnings, these tornado warnings. I mean, they would come up when you were just least expecting it. So you had to be aware of that. And, and folks, that's our job. There's a there's a warning in those little towns that would be on the radio. It'd be uh, there would be a siren in these little towns, and, and the siren would go off, and people would prepare. The tornado is coming. Tornado is coming. Folks, we are we are the ones that are warning. Like Noah, 120 years, warned people. And it's God's grace. And when we see the sinfulness of man, and we see the patience of God, we have to ask the question, why am I included in vessels of mercy? And I have no answer for that. No answer for that. I should be blotted out. The Lord should just strike us dead immediately. But He's kind. He's a gracious and compassionate Lord. And His wrath should not be toyed with. And his wrath is to be avoided, and we come along, and we uh, and we warn people. That's what our job is. My son just moved to Xenia, Ohio. One of the things that Xenia, Ohio, is known for is at one point in its history, it was completely wiped out with a tornado. The whole the whole town wiped out with a tornado. They rebuilt. Can you imagine? No warning system. No warning system, folks. He's made. You a vessel. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's the good news. He's made you a vessel, a vessel for honor. A vessel of, of mercy. It wasn't your doing. He was just showing mercy on you. And he's done so, so that we would be a, a warning. And that's not fun to bring a warning to the world. But that warning is also supplied with good news, isn't it? The good news of the gospel. God is a gracious, He's patient, and He'll accept anyone that comes to Him. And He says, come, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for being a kind and gracious God. Lord, I I pray that You would work in our hearts today. Lord, may may we apply these passages, this passage where, where it needs to be applied to our life.
Help us to be warned. Help us to be a warning. Help us to be grateful for being vessels of mercy. Lord, thank you for the example of your patience. And just help us to restrain our own anger and leave those things up to you. We thank you for being a great God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.